And she talks about processing pain, how you can identify and acknowledge you're feeling it and tell yourself, hey, it hurts right now. And I feel it in my heart, but it's okay. Like that feeling, it's okay to feel that. I'm not going to ignore it. How are you? Thank you so much for being on here. Yeah, I'm doing good. Thank you for having me. Of course. I, know I didn't even realize we were being recorded right now. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I just, we just kind of got the ball rolling. I like to slip it in there. Oh, you know? yeah. Sneaky. Yeah, you know, like slip it, it in there and sort of break yeah. the ice. You know, I think there's several things we're going to learn from this episode. I've already pre-recorded what you said to me. I, I didn't even know what the hell you were talking about, but it made sense. Start off with any part of your story. You, know, you, you did tell me, you know, you lost your father. You lost uh, one of the first loves of your life. And you were also involved as a caregiver in hospice. Yep. So I'm not sure where that story starts, but feel free to take the rein. Sure. I mean, I can I can start in chronological order if you want. Chronological is the best order. Yeah. Um, I guess let's talk about the physicalities of death. As a caregiver, I worked in the hospital, you know, even dealing with cancer patients who or diabetes patients, and then uh, hospice care, which is, you know, compassionate care at home, in-home care for for people who are having this illness that won't go away. So they have a couple of months to live or a year left and their families want them to be comfortable. So they want them at home and they have a caregiver caring after them. So I was one of the caregivers. It was 12 hour shifts and me and one other girl. And I met this incredible woman. She had a pancreatic cancer and she was always laughing and happy. And her family, she's surrounded by love and her family was home with her till the very last moment. And it was just beautiful to see how it brought everyone together, you know, and all her kids and stuff love her very much. Her husband was a pharmacist, so he wanted to make sure that she stayed comfortable throughout until her last breath. And so he gave her all the meds to keep her comfortable, basically like morphine and things like that. And I just noticed, wow, how, how does someone stay so happy when they know they're, they don't have that much time left to live? And that made me look at my life differently too, where it's like, okay, well, how would I want to go? You know, I used to think, oh, you need to, like, everybody passes away in the hospital. I didn't know that was even an option to be home. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds better off the bat. Yeah. I mean, you're comfortable, you're at home, you're around people you love. And um, it's not as cold. I feel like the hospital is a little cold. And I noticed things about her body kind of going through these changes, especially the last week of her life. Uh, she, she had modeling, uh, which is, I don't know if you know what that is. No, please explain. Yeah. <laughs> you tell about my face that. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> it's, um, it's when your body starts uh, turning purple, purplish and, and red, blotchy, kind of marbling looking thing, kind of creeping up, uh, usually like from your legs, working its way up. And it's just like the last week of your life when your, your heart starts to work less. And um, so there's not enough blood flow going into your limbs as much. So that's, that's kind of, one one indicator that someone's going to pass away. And then the um, there's a death rattle, which is really fascinating because I've never heard of that before. A death rattle. It's when your, your respiratory system kind of uh, starts shutting down and all the saliva and everything kind of goes in, in your throat and it's not, you're having trouble swallowing essentially. And so it kind of bubbles up in your throat. And usually that's that happens between 24 to 48 hours before you pass away. That's a consistency with it, most people. That I don't die. know that everybody goes through that, but hmm. um, a lot of people do. And the one that I, in my case, my patient's case, um, I, I heard her go through that. She actually passed away um, after my shift, like an hour after I left. 
Okay, yeah. so you didn't physically see anything. I didn't physically see her go, but I got the phone call and I'm like, wow. You might already be alluding to it, but you said she was laughing and happy and you don't know how someone could be like that on their last, you know, they know they're going to die. Mm-hmm. And you, maybe this is part of the answer, but being home around their loved ones, did she, did you ever speak to her about that or have any idea of why she might have been so happy? Did, did she just accept it? Have you had any conversation with her in regards to her? You know, at the time I didn't really ask her those questions. Yeah. I was like, I was in nursing school at the time and I was looking to gain experience working uh, with patient care. And uh, I think I was 20, 25 years old at the time. And this is I wish I had you, asked her. This is yeah. before you lost anyone personally. Like- Actually, you know what? I did not go in chronological order there. <laughs> I actually <laughs> dealing with it's okay, death. Maybe we'll I cut this have, up and flip it around like a Quentin Tarantino Getting my timelines mess, messed up here. Yeah. Uh, my first love passed away first, um, and then I went to nursing school after. That's so what happened with your first, your first love. Um, with my first love, he he had a motorcycle accident. We actually broke up a little bit before he passed away. And uh, we were still in love with each other. It's just a very volatile relationship. And I realized like, okay, this is not healthy for me. So I made the conscious effort to leave, but it was hard. And I got the news from his sister one day. She called me crying ballistically and I couldn't even hear her through her sobbing. And I asked her like, what happened? She said, Kevin died. And I guess uh, he got hit. And I go, what do you mean he got hit? She said he was doing the wheelie on the motorcycle and his friend uh, or the donut donut oh, yeah a wheelie donut sorry donut is pretty impressive <laughs> maybe a wheelie donut probably yeah he's done a lot of crazy stuff like knee dragging on the motorcycle so his friend had uh, accidentally drove into him and then uh, Kevin I think from what I heard uh, flew up off his bike and then landed and just it was instant impact and he passed away jeez yeah it was really sad like I I saw him at the funeral along with, like, all of his ex-girlfriends. So it was really interesting to see all of them showed up. Well, what was your first initial reaction from something like that? Especially, I feel like it might be a little unique to, not unique, but a different type of reaction when, I know you said you guys loved each other, so there's that, but you weren't together. And were you speaking regularly that you, like, stayed in touch? or, not, or was- um, No, I actually lied to him before we broke it off because I thought it was so unhealthy. I just told him I cheated on him even though I didn't. I just thought maybe that way he'll never want to get back with me. So okay. I, I told him that. And um, I think he was still scarred from a previous relationship. She cheated on him. And so he had some trust issues. And I didn't feel—well, I don't want to say anything negative about him at this point. But at the time, no, we didn't have— we, didn't, we were not on speaking terms. Got it. So what, Cindy, what was your first initial reaction to hearing that? I was in shock. I was actually with my new boyfriend at the time, and I couldn't believe that happened. I really didn't—even I heard it on the phone when his sister told me, and I can tell she's distraught, but it didn't hit me until later. I know some people, it hits them right away. For me, I had a delayed reaction where I was like, did this really happen? He's so young. He's not even 30 yet. When you say delayed reaction, does that mean— a delayed reaction of like, emotional effects? Yeah, I felt sad later where mm. I, I did end up crying and and mourning his death, but I didn't feel it uh, right away. Why do you think that is? Uh, I think it's processing what just happened and coming to the realization that it did happen, accepting the fact that he died. I think acceptance is hard for a lot of people, even just knowing like someone they uh, love is is going to pass away soon. A lot of times people are not prepared for it. And I was not prepared to hear that news. And was that your first experience of someone, you know, in your life like that, that passed? That close, yeah. I Got think it, okay. I would say so. 
I mean, I had family members that passed away before I met them, so that doesn't really count. Yeah, it's like, a little different. Yeah, it's, it's a lot different. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot different. I'm not, but still, I, I, I'm trying to think of the first person in my life that died, but I, it definitely was someone that wasn't, you know, as they were in my family, but it wasn't as close. There's always a little, it hits you differently, clearly, if you know someone that was intimate like that. So I, I guess if it hit you, I'm just trying to break down your reaction to it because I kind of want to, I'm curious about the comparison of when we're going to get into losing your father, mm-hmm. of how those reactions work. Clearly two different uh, male figures in your life, but I'm curious to see how those two compare in regards to the grief aspect. Like, was there a process for this or was this something that you more or less, quote unquote, quickly got over in regards to your boyfriend? Was just a, a um, I definitely lasting? didn't quickly get over it. I, I have a strange story around my ex, actually. I always felt like after he passed away, his presence was always around me. I don't know how to explain it. I didn't see anything weird, but I could feel as if his spirit is around me. So the weird thing happened, I would try to move on, but it's as if other men couldn't fall in love with me for a while. So after some time, I decided at the age of 30, I told my aunt about it and I said, I think my ex's spirit is still around me. I don't know. Like I've never been into, I don't know if I believed in spirits and things like that. But she said, you know what? You need to go see this Vietnamese monk. She had her daughter go um, because she had experienced her friend who passed away that followed her home. And I just thought, oh, that's interesting. Oh. And <laughs> very creepy. It was a, it was in Adelanto. And he was on the LA Times one time about how like he was traveling and they were looking to set up a temple and their uh, car yeah, or something broke Ad- down. Adelanto? Oh, sorry, Adelanto, California. Okay, well, where in California is I, that? I think it's two hours away. I can't okay. remember exactly where. I thought because we were talking about, uh, what's the, the the documentary we were talking about? Uh, Walk With Me. Right, what was the guy's name? Tit Nhat Hanh. Yeah, I thought This it was... was a different monk. Yeah, God, okay. <laughs> They're both Vietnamese, though. Okay. Yeah, yeah. so this one's a monk that my aunt recommended. So I said, okay, sure, I'm open-minded. You know, I'll go. I went on my 30th birthday, uh, and I asked the monk if, my ex-boyfriend's still around me. And he uh, he said, yes. Oh, so you're right, according to <laughs> the monk. I guess so, yeah. The monk said yes. So I said, okay, well, what do I need to do? And he said, okay, we'll come back, bring fruits and flowers, and he will uh, pray for him to pass on to the other world. And I was like, okay. So I came back, had me kneel down while he chanted all these things. And then I was like, huh. I felt something kind of like lift. Really? Yeah, like just kind of feel lighter, maybe. I don't know how to explain it. In the moment? In the moment, yeah. And Mm. then I get a call from his sister the next day, I believe. I don't know if it was the next day or a week later. But his sister calls me out of the blue, and I hadn't talked to her for so long. And she said, oh, my gosh, Kevin won't leave me alone. He keeps trying to break up my relationship. And I'm like, what? Kevin is her brother that passed away. Right. Um, And— I was like, huh, interesting. Sounded like my story. <laughs> you just go from her to you? Yeah. I mean, so, you to her? Exactly, from me to her. So she had the similar story where he said, like, he kept messing with her relationship and he doesn't want her to be with her current boyfriend. I'm like, how is it that I didn't tell her my story? So she didn't even know. She didn't know. I went to a monk about me feeling like her, her brother was around. Wait, is there any clarification on the timeline? Like, do you think he was doing this simultaneously or did— can someone do it? To, I don't know. Can I thought that when see that I, I'm not familiar with that world. Like I don't know. Well, I was asking like when she called Can you it, and mentioned that to you. Did it? Because it was curious, shortly I, after. Yeah. It was short. It was shortly after. Yeah. yeah I'm just curious if she start like if the, she started noticing this. You know, a week 
before. I clearly had to be a longer thing for her to realize. I would think was, so. Yeah. Right. So he was double dipping. I just know <laughs> <laughs> he was. He was doing the same thing with the both of us. That's all I know. I don't remember the timeline specifically. I'm so bad with dates. But that's so bizarre. So what? It was bizarre. What did she do? Did you go? She go. She wants to go see a shaman. So she went a different route. Uh, she went to go see a shaman. They they sacrificed a dove, and then it worked. Christ. So she said, "Yeah, he doesn't bother me anymore." Sacrifice a dove. A dove. Damn, yeah. you're still doing that type it's of very shit? very ritualist. <laughs> it's like a Wiccan thing. Yeah, I dove, don't know. Sacrificing anything is, you know, suspect, but a dove is so... I, I just know. think of Home Alone with the two doves. But oh, dove, wow. doves are white too, so how that could be messy. I don't anyway, want to see... I don't even want to envision that. But no, my, mine didn't require any sacrificing. It was just flowers and... Yeah, when he said to, when he's praying for you, I wasn't sure. He said, come back and do what? What was it again? Oh, come back and just bring uh, flowers and, flowers, and okay. uh, fruits. And it's like an offering to him, basically, and then for him to pass on. All right. But somehow, yeah, it, uh, well, she said it, whatever the shaman did worked for her, apparently. And so she doesn't feel him around anymore. So then what is what do you make of this? I don't know. Some things, can, <laughs> they cannot be explained, I feel like. Did that help you? get beyond his death? Oh, yes. Uh, as far as, well, for one, yeah, I felt like I had some closure with that, hmm. for sure. Otherwise, I always felt like, gosh, um, I can't believe, you know, he passed away, and should I have broken up with him? You know, I felt right. like his ex-girlfriend had inherited everything, so all the stuff I bought him, his entertainment center, his bed sheets and everything. Oh, she got the bed sheets? <laughs> I don't think... <laughs> Sorry. I don't think she knows. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't tell her, but she planned the funeral. She was the one that planned the funeral, the new girlfriend. Yeah. Um, and, and I was able to have uh, guys were able to fall in love with me again afterwards. And I was able to actually get deeper in my relationship where I felt like I couldn't get past a certain level of intimacy with my partners. I was able to finally And you always get felt it that. was coming from their side. It wasn't you and your inability to love. It was— Yeah. Hmm. I felt like there was something blocking them for from— Feeling deeper, Jesus, or falling Kevin. deeper. This guy, I mean, he's, it's interesting too. They had all these ex girlfriends. I wonder if you went one by one to this all his girlfriends, <laughs> and they're they're all no one's in love right now. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't ask. That's some weird shit. That was very weird. I, all I can say is it's bizarre. I've never experienced that before. But yeah, after that, I've never had any weird stuff happen. It's so interesting. You just said when you said there's a block, and you felt it was just a feeling. Like, it was a feeling. It's like feeling like, huh? It's a very superficial relationship where it's just like okay. Like it would last very. It was a very short. But what connected you to Kevin? Once again, it was just a knowingness, a feeling. It was like Kevin. It's feeling like he's in the room with me. It's really so strange. strange, and it's like he's not approving of who I'm with, or he yeah. doesn't want me to be with the person that I'm. Have with. you ever had any other uh, experiences like that in any of the other aspects of your life? Um, no. That was the only one. That was the only one that was like that. So interesting. What the hell is that? Weird. Yeah. I wonder what kind of mischievous stuff Kevin's up to right now. <laughs> He was a very mischievous person in general, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, he almost died in the motorcycle when he was 16, and then he was still driving, you know, recklessly, um, cutting in and out lanes, doing the wheelie with me in the back yeah, and didn't terrible. even tell me yeah, while sad. we're on the freeway. I'm like, I could have fallen off your bike, you know. That's an interesting mindset for people, for people that are as adventurous as, as Kevin was. I mean, it's sad that, you know, he went like that. Uh, but I wonder, I feel like so many people that are – doing those, those dangerous sports or dangerous activities, those people honestly are potentially living the most. Like we discussed earlier about, you know, you're in, without accepting death, it's harder to live. I don't, I don't know. You said it way more elegantly than I did. But if someone like that, he's probably, he seems pretty fearless. And I'm sure he's contemplated going out like that, 
Or he probably, I feel like someone like that may have just accepted it. And that's maybe, yeah. Like, do uh, I think uh, Tinahan was the one that said, yeah, if you're not ready to die, you're not ready to live or you're not living now. That's that's what it was. Mm-hmm. And I feel like maybe, you know, maybe he already came to terms with that. He could be, yeah. I mean, it had been a couple of years since we broke up, so I wasn't sure what he was thinking. But right, he definitely course. didn't mind risking mm-hmm. his life doing those things. Um, I witnessed him falling off his bike on the freeway while the bike was dragging him 30 feet, you know. Yeah, so it was pretty crazy to see that. I, w- I was horrified. I was like, I can't believe you're still riding <laughs> after that. Yeah. So what was the timeline? What was the gap in between Kevin's death and then when you lost your dad? Gosh, it was a while. So my father passed away three years ago in 2018. Three year, Over three years ago, I'm 38 now. So I was 35. Kevin, I think I lost him when I was around 25. So almost 10 years. That's a totally different experience. It's a completely different experience altogether. I think, one, he's my father. So, of course, I've known him all my life. Uh, My story is a little unique in that we didn't have the best relationship before he passed away. I had a sibling quarrel that kind of led to my family disagreeing with what I did or how I handled it. And they decided to pick a side. Of course, in the Vietnamese culture, the son is like the golden child. And um, so they decided to side with him. And so that led... My parents abandoning me in 2015. And when I discovered via text message from my cousin, he sends me pictures of my dad's tumors in his throat. He had three of them. He had esophageal cancer. And I mean, just seeing those pictures, I already feel my tears coming up. I had stress highs for like a month when I found out. And I was like, oh my gosh, like I have to find my way back to him. I was living in Arizona at the time. I think, yeah, that definitely hit me right away versus Kevin took me a while. Yeah, you're still, I mean, three years is three, four years is not that much time. Right, yeah. It's still a short period of time. I just couldn't believe when they said, yeah, he only has a very short period left, like I think six months or eight months. They didn't know. And what, 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 he had cancer? Esophageal cancer. He had been smoking since he was 14. So I always knew in the back of my mind that that's a possibility if he didn't quit and he wasn't able to quit. We tried really hard to get him to quit smoking. But, you know, he's been doing it for so long. That made me come back home uh, in June before he passed away in October. And he was like a skeleton, like just seeing how he looked. It was like he was just skin and bones. He didn't even look like a person anymore. And... I think all the drugs that he was on, he was at home too, thankfully. So he had my brothers and he had my mom at home. But he just looked like he hasn't been able to eat. You know, it's hard for him to swallow. And yeah, it was just not uh, not pleasant to look at. Was he communicative? Was he able to? He hardly was able to. He had a hard time speaking. It would hurt, yeah, for him to talk. But he was cognitive? Like he knew you were there? and He knew I was there, but he wasn't exactly himself. And so part of me is wondering, hey, like when I said I love you to him, the last time I saw him, he didn't say it back. He didn't say it back. He didn't say it back. I can't imagine. So that was really hard because I was like, I remember talking to him before and he said, yeah, you know, I forgive you because he blamed me for the family falling apart, even though I had a different, you know, story in my mind. I don't think you can ever really prepare for your parents to pass away. Like, you know we're mortals and we're not going to be alive forever. But when it actually happens, you're, you know, what do you do? I see. I can't obviously, I can't relate 
but you're walking into such a tough doors already. Like, you know, you're walking into your father with his last moments, but you're walking into a situation that you just explained with your family. Yeah. I wasn't welcome there at all. They didn't even want me there even while he was dying. I came to visit him, flew in, uh, or I drove in from Arizona. My cousin from DC was in town. So she's like, I'll come with you. I'll be your support. I wasn't allowed to be alone with him. So the doors were open. My brother said, yeah, you can't close your door. Yeah. He didn't want, I don't know. They're just, he didn't trust me. So he didn't want me to be alone with my dad. In a sense of, I mean, it's maybe speculation at this point, but in a sense of he didn't want you to share any part of your position of the family? I have no idea. It could be that. It could be that he's worried. I don't know. I just did whatever they felt comfortable with. It's their home. I said, okay, well, I wasn't welcome there because he told my cousin, he said, you're not welcome here. She's not, you're here, you're welcome here, but Van's not welcome here. Your brother said. My brother said that to my cousin. I'm like, wow. Like even during these times, I feel like this is a time and the moment where we should put all of the issues we have aside to come together as a family, you Absolutely. know? Absolutely. Yeah, so that that was hard. And I was like, okay, wow, I had 15 minutes and I made the trip for 15 minutes. And that was literally the last time I saw him. And I just thought, gosh, how am I going to get past this if he didn't say I love you back? I wrote him a three-page letter. I said, okay, well, I'm going to try my best. Try to, I took all the steps I learned from all of the experts on adversity and dealing with emotional pain, like Tara Brock and um, Pima Chardon, and I'll talk about them in a minute, but... It helped a lot, like just knowing like, hey, I might not be able to get everything off my chest like I did that day I saw him, but I could at least write him a letter. So I wrote everything I felt. So that way I won't have any regrets if I didn't say these things and I mailed it to him. Whether or not he got it, I didn't hear back. Hmm. I don't know. I don't know if it got intercepted (laughs) or if it got thrown in the trash or if he actually read and didn't know how to respond because... You know, in the Vietnamese culture, a lot of men don't know how to be in touch with their emotions, and affection is not a thing. Yeah, so. So you're saying this letter that you wrote where you just let it all out? I let it all out, yeah. It helped me a lot, yeah. I think even if you are not, if even if you're not able to mail it to the person, just the process of writing it helps you process your emotions and to just identify what you're feeling, right, and why you're feeling that way. And think to yourself, how would you want the other person to respond? If this person's to receive your letter, you know, what would you want to hear back? Even if it's not real and that person's not telling you. So I did that exercise. It was an exercise I read about where you just write the letter and then you imagine, okay, how would you want the other person to respond? And how does it make you feel after they respond the way that you would like them to? Interesting. So was a lot of it, was a lot of the hard part for you. I mean, I'm sure there's many hard parts. Was just the way it went down based on how your relationship was comparative to just the idea of loss, you know, because I know you alluded to me losing my dad, but, you know, I, I was for, I was blessed to have, I, I didn't have that same transition as you in a sense that I had a falling out with my dad. So when my dad died, it was, you know, I was really mourning the loss of my father, but you're kind of balancing both, both, like you're both balancing the fact that you just lost your father but also the exit was so cold, right? Yeah, it was a very cold exit. And it was very much like, this is not my family. Like the three or two, two years that we had been apart is as if I didn't have a family. And so I've come to accept that for a while where I'm like, okay, I'm going to have to live without my family. What is it like not to have parents? What is it like not to have siblings that you're used to having around you all the time? And I think it, it also triggered some family trauma for me too seeing how they're dealing with it rather than embracing me and calling me 
and saying, hey, your father just passed away. So when he passed away, I didn't get the news from my family. I got it from my my aunt-in-law. <laughs> so she's not even blood-related. Well, she is kind of, you know, she's still family, but it was different hearing it from, yeah. let's say my mom called me and told me the news. Yeah, yeah I can't even imagine. So after you wrote that letter, what uh, what were you feeling? Like, you said you said you felt better, but what's the process from there? I, I wrote him a letter, and then I— I did this Buddhist thing. My mom's Buddhist, my dad's Catholic, so I grew up with both uh, some of the um, traditions, I guess. So I lit, I bought incense. I lit the incense. I had a picture of my father as I was lighting the incense, and I put it in a cup of rice. And I talked to him as if he was in front of me. How long after did you start this process? Um, Pretty much like right after I mailed the letter. Yeah, like maybe a day or two, I decided— you know what, I'm going to take this time to really mourn him. This is before he even passed away. So I had already oh. been preparing for for that moment. And I just thought, okay, well, I need to do it now and and prepare for him to pass on. I do believe that sometimes having too much attachment is a bad thing. And, it, and for me, it's not that I want him to die. It's that I don't want him to suffer. Because sometimes living is harder than dying, you know, in that sense. I mean, it seems like you, you, do, you put yourself in these places— ahead of time to prepare for a situation. I feel like I've heard you a couple of times say, what's it like not to have a family? And then what's it like to have him die? Mm-hmm. So do you do that? Do you like meditate on how you are going to handle something? Does that make sense? Yes. I think I think it's important to definitely face it, you know, not brush it under the rug and being prepared for embracing yourself for it, right? Like um, dealing with pain and loss is not easy, and most people are not prepared for that. So I try my best to be prepared. I mean, you can only prepare so much, right? And you had some buffer of preparation because you knew he was going to pass. Exactly. Like I kind of, in my mind, already knew, okay, well, he hasn't, he's already had, you know, COPD and he had been smoking for a while. And um, so in my mind, I had already kind of accepted that if that were to happen, this this could be the result, right? And it kind of goes back to me looking at my own life and realizing I need to hold myself accountable. Like my how my actions impact the people around me but also my life and the decisions I make. And when I see him, I see a man that's full of regrets. I see a man who was unhappy when he was alive. He lost he lost hope. People who lose hope tend to go, tend to die faster than those who do not lose hope when they are, you know, having a chronic illness or um, a disease. I've seen that with a lot of patients. Yeah. Yeah. It's, a, it's kind of, I've brought this up on other episodes and I've heard similar ideologies in regards to people that are grieving. Mm-hmm. But it's like Viktor Frankl, I've heard the book Man's Search for Meaning. Mm. It's pretty much based on that. He was just a Holocaust survivor. And he what he believes is, uh, I think he called it logotherapy, mm-hmm. which is essentially attaching, me. you're saying hope, but same, like finding meaning in life or having your why as like, why am I living? And yeah. essentially if you're losing hope, you're not going to have a why or have a meaning for life. And it makes sense because I feel like that that applies to so many different aspects of life. You have nothing to live for, then how are you going to live? Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting way to look at it. I think it that makes you look at your own life and how you've been living or how you've not been living. And so I think uh, after that happened, I didn't hold myself back from anything because I realized I've lost everything. So what do you what do I have to lose if I don't go for the things that I want to achieve in life? Like a lot of people hold themselves back because they're afraid. I kind of threw that out the window mm, <laughs> a while back. Yeah, it's it's been an amazing adventure because I'm able to let go of that fear. You know, that fear of like, oh, what if I can't? 
you know, but it's more so like, what if I don't? Right. Yeah. So what's that process uh, afterwards? Because in a sense that you were, you were preparing yourself because mm-hmm. you did have word that your father was dying, so you're prepping for the after sure, effect of that. it. I'm, I'm, I would like to say that there's moments where, you know, you don't feel as strong. It's not like a constant. Like once you do that, you're just good, poof. Yeah. So what what were you doing after? Because you prepped for it, what it might be. Then you found out what it was. Was mm-hmm. there anything that you were doing differently in the moment of grief, or did you feel real grief? Like, what, what were the what were the feelings afterwards? Gosh, I cried a lot when I found out he was uh, going to pass away. And when they had the funeral, I was invited to come and be there, but it felt awkward where I would be in front of the church with my family and stand as a united front, though I knew in reality we were not. And it kind of goes against my integrity in a sense. And it's not my pride where why I didn't go. I was actually in a very toxic relationship and I lived with my former business partner who said, if you go, you won't have a home to come home to. What? What? Yeah. Wait, what? Because he felt like he was protecting me from my family. So that was his reasoning where like you can't, because he's worried that if I go, I'm going to fall apart and he's going to have to put me back together. Because okay, he didn't think I would be strong enough to handle being there like with my family. I know. So going back to regret, right? I'm like, wow, like if I hadn't, well, it's my fault too at the same time where it's like if I hadn't gotten into that toxic relationship and I didn't depend on somebody else, right? I wouldn't have come across that problem, but it happened. And my cousin even said, you know, I if you don't want to stand in front of the church with your family, I'm happy to stand with you in the back. But at least you'll be there and you won't regret it. My friends showed up to his funeral really? and I wasn't there. So I would say that that part was hard. Just kind of like, wow, I didn't even show up to my dad's funeral. My name came up a couple of times, my friend told me, and I was nowhere to be found. Does that still sit with you? Sometimes, yeah. Of like, wow, can't believe I wasn't there when they buried him. That's, that's definitely got to be something that could be easily regrettable. But in the moment, you know, things are happening, you feel a certain way. So. Mm-hmm. I think now it's it's easy to look back at something. I think that's hence why we have regrets. You look back at something, you're just different people, right? Absolutely. I mean, now I know moving forward, you know, I don't want to have to put myself in that situation again. And he ended up giving me 24 hours to vacate anyway at one point. And that led to me um, moving to Seattle 24 hours after making the decision to move there. That actually leads to an interesting story of why I ended up in in Seattle or in Washington in the first place. And the guy who had him and his girlfriend accepted me into their home, and it was somebody I'd never met before. Something told me to call him. And uh, so he worked at the Art Institute at the time as a counselor, and his his students were my interns when my brother and I had partnered up together for his entertainment PR firm. And so he knew who I am, you know, who I am, who I was and who I am. But he, you know, I I just didn't know, like, why am I telling somebody I'm not that close to the situation that I'm in? Like, I have 24 hours to vacate and I have nowhere to live. And he said, you can live with me in my home. I'm at my girlfriend's house most of the time. She's okay with it. And he has set up his space to be like Thich Nhat Hanh. And Thich Nhat Hanh is a meditation master and a Buddhist monk. He He's... He's at the Deer Park Monastery, or was. He just passed away recently, so that's been big news. But he, that was a big turning point for me to have that safe, that safe space to move into. And it was just me going from one toxic relationship into another, realizing I needed to break that cycle. 
So he said, I want to create a safe space for you to heal. Take all the time you need. And um, it helped a lot. Yeah. And what were the practices? Was it just the environment or were there certain? It was the environment and people taking me in with this unconditional love, with no expectation of wanting something back in return. So was it a sense of family? Sense of family. That you've been missing? Yes. And you got it. Sorry. Don't, don't apologize. I know people cry on your podcast because I've seen it. It's okay. I just, <laughs> Sometimes I don't think I'm going to, and then it just comes out. Yeah, no, it was amazing. Um, that, that actually led to my revival, starting over. Like truly letting go. Yeah, uh, his name is Jay. Jay introduced me to Tinahan's teachings. So he gave me this book. He said, okay, you need to read this book. It's called Anger because I was still angry. <laughs> Not realizing I was angry. I thought I was just sad. But I was angry at my parents. I was angry at my brother. And Tanahan taught me the actual emotion of anger. You only really experience it for 10 minutes. But the reason why we feel it for so long is because we're not willing to work through it. We don't want to resolve the problem, right? And so after that, I was like, you know what? I don't want to ever go to bed angry again. If I have a problem with someone, I want to address it right away and come to a resolution you know, and not not hold on to it. And in my family's case, it's not like I'm able to have them meet me halfway. So it was more about accepting the situation the way it is, knowing that I can't change my family, but I can still love them. But I can still love myself in the process and not sacrifice myself to, you know, be around people who don't love me, essentially. And it seems like you're still, uh, you know, you're saying you let you learn to let it go? I let it go. So I'm not angry anymore. I love them. And I, I tell them that. I text them once in a while and just say, hey, happy Mother's Day or Merry Christmas. Thank you, guys. Hope you're well. You know. It's a level, you said, so it's a level of forgiveness, which. It is forgiveness, yep. Then is a level of let it go. But how how did you let go? And is it, I know you, you just went through it, but was there any sp- specific conversation? Was it partly, like, like you said, just kind of. This is what it is, and allowing yourself to feel that and let it pass. Like what? Because the, the art of letting go seems it's so easy to say, but it's so hard to actually let go. Yeah. I'm just wondering: is can you describe any sort of process of what you do to let something go? I think uh, one facing it, facing the feelings, acknowledging it, not ignoring it. I'm not ignoring the fact that I feel pain in my heart. Um, and describing how it feels for some people, maybe it's in their stomach, you know, um, maybe their heart, their heart feels like hard, like a rock. And I was listening to Super Soul Sunday, Oprah's uh, podcast, and Pima Chodron was on. She's an American Tibetan Buddhist. She's an ordained Buddhist. And she talks about processing pain, how you can identify and acknowledge you're feeling it and tell yourself, hey, it hurts right now. And I feel it in my heart, you know, but it's okay. Like that feeling, it's okay to feel that. I'm not going to ignore it. You know, I'm still human. And then just taking it in and just inhaling it in and really sitting with it for a while. And then exhaling all of that out and just imagining like black smoke coming out from underneath me and into the floor, anticipating. And that that I think imagining that kind of helps you, that exercise of letting go of the pain and just saying, like, it's okay to experience the pain, experience it, sit it, sit with it, and then release. And do you feel like you fully 
in your head? Are you? Do you think there's still healing to do, or do you feel pretty? I'm at peace now. Yeah. 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 No, I've been ready to see them, and I saw them for the first time in five years this past Thanksgiving. Your family? My family. They weren't when I moved back from. So I guess long story short, I when I left California after the whole disowning situation, I lived in like five different states or something. And then I, from Pennsylvania, drove all the way back to California because I felt like I needed to make sure I don't have any regrets that I do make the effort to see them, whether or not they are ready for me. I want them to know that I am here. So I drove back. And uh, first, my mom did say before I left Pennsylvania and coming here, she said, yeah, you know, we would love to have you and let's go eat. So I moved back and it was near Thanksgiving. I didn't hear back from her when I texted her. You know, um, she said, I'm not ready to see you. I was like, it's been five years. <laughs> yeah, what's that? If you're not ready to see me now, I don't know if you'll be ready to see me in two weeks, which was Thanksgiving. And so that kind of broke my heart at first. Because I thought five years, you know, why wouldn't you want to see me? It's been a long time. And then my aunt's now like dying of pancreatic cancer. So... She had a deathbed confession with me recently. And my mom finally called me, or not called me, sorry. She texted me and said, we would love to have you at Thanksgiving. I got three text messages at the same time. So my cousin had said, come to my house. Everybody's going to be there because that's where they're celebrating Thanksgiving with the entire family. And this is the cousin that's pretty much been the most supportive one that's been— Oh, sorry. Uh, So this is a different cousin um, that— uh, was hosting the Thanksgiving party. Okay. Yeah, sorry. So his wife's like a—she owns a catering company, and she usually does the—host the Thanksgiving parties at their house. Got it. And so he said, yeah, come. Yeah, we want you there. The family wants you there. And I was like, oh, that's great. Apparently, he had convinced my mom to have me go. <laughs> <laughs> How'd it go? Um, I didn't feel like she was my mom anymore. I think, like, that cord has been severed. In terms of that bond, mother and, and daughter bond, because it's been five years. And I have surrogate families in different states. So I have a surrogate family in Indiana who showed me what unconditional love like a family is like. I got to spend Sundays with them, you know, go to church with them, have meals together. So I've never experienced that before until I met, you know, my ex-boyfriend's family in Indiana. So I'm very grateful that even though I didn't have my family, I was able to experience the same kind of love that, from other people. But yeah, no, I saw my mom. So we embraced each other with the hug, and it was like everybody's watching us. That's <laughs> <laughs> Like they're waiting for that moment because they know, like, they haven't seen each other for five years. And so we hugged each other. It was it felt kind of obligatory, at, at, you know, at the moment. And just like the small talk, hey, how have you been? Are you well? And she was like, oh, I haven't been able to sleep, you know, since your father passed away. It's been hard for her. And she's stressed out all the time. Like, oh, wow, like I didn't know. And my brother wasn't ready to see me, so he sat down for two minutes uh, I, I decided to plop down next to him with my food. <laughs> just small time. Like, hey, so how's Brian, my other brother? You know, but, but Brian didn't come to dinner at all. And then Steve was like, yeah, he's doing good. You know, he got into a leadership position at his company that he's working for, and like some stem, stem cell research company. I'm like, that's awesome. And I guess he got uncomfortable. So two minutes later, he got up and just walked away. <laughs> I tried, you know, what can yeah. I say? I tried. Yeah, it is, you know, I, I think you're what I'm taking from you, which is an important lesson is, you know, you can only control so much. You can only control how you feel about things, how you see things and how you react. And, you know, I I know as much as you just told me, but at least it seems like you're working on yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I've been working on myself for a while now. Yeah, Yeah, adversity definitely is character building and that like you were talking about, you know, accepting what you can't control 
you know, building your resilience and uh, being flexible, right? Not having those expectations that things need to go your way. Uh, And I'm okay with that. So I came in knowing that it might be awkward or they might not be ready to see me. And I'm okay. I'm still like happy with who I am. I think at the end of the day, as long as you're doing the things that best align with you and you're living with integrity, you're living to build your character every day, you don't really have any regrets. And I think for me, like I'm at this point where, yeah, if I die tomorrow, if I die tonight, I'm completely happy with the way my life has gone, regardless of those hardships. You yeah, know? good. Yeah. Well, I'm proud of you. And in, in regards to, you know, your story of losing your father and your ex-boyfriend, it is an interesting dynamic because you lost a family and it's not death, right. but there's so many comparisons of loss that don't necessarily mean the the death of someone physically. So, uh, you know, it, it seems like there's losing your dad's one thing, but losing a family is even more continual in your everyday life. And uh, yeah, as long as you're doing those steps, working on yourself, um, I truly hope, you know, I mean, I don't know, I don't want to, I'm not speaking for you and what you want, but I do hope they come around and, and find some way of, you know, reconnecting because it seems like there's still plenty of love in your heart and I hope it finds their way. I'm, I'm, you know, I, I love them regardless. And when they're ready, you know, I'm here, I moved back to California permanently. So to be close to family and friends and I'm very blessed and, you know, I don't, I don't regret the things that I done. I, I did it because it was in alignment with who I am and I knew I was doing the right thing. And sometimes doing the right thing is harder than it has, um, people might not always react the way you want them to, but as long as you stand up for the things you believe in, I don't think that you'll have any regrets that way. And yeah, now it's like I can be fearless in the things that I do and take the risks I don't normally do because like you only have one life to live. Yeah. So do the things you want to do and go for it. Don't hold yourself back. I had somebody from high school say, I look up to you. I'm like, what do you mean? We graduate the same year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you act as if I'm that much older. And he's like, no, it's just like you're putting yourself out there and you're doing the things uh, that a lot of people I know from our high school or from our you know age group didn't do. And I'm like, what's holding you back? You know, when I was in Seattle, uh, all these opportunities came and I was always very open to it. And it was amazing because I don't think that I would have taken it on otherwise because of fear, you know, fear of like embarrassing myself if I went on stage to speak or I did my first podcast interview in Seattle as well. And it, it took me being vulnerable and courageous enough to share my story of adversity on, you know, on her podcast. And I'm doing that again today, but you know, I think (laughs) it's interesting what you're saying is, uh, you know, the fear that gets a hold of someone, no matter what it is. Mm -hmm. I was told a, a a quick little thing called fear and flip. Mm, I was told it was called, like when you have the fear of what it is, just flip it in a sense that I feel like when we do build this fear, or it, you focus on the questions that you're asking. It's just mm-hmm. like, oh man, what if I, like you just said, what if I fail? What if I this? What if I that? Okay, well, that's fear, but flip it. Okay, and say the opposite. So if it's something bad, you just say the opposite. What if I fail? Like, what if I succeed? Right. And it sounds corny, but I mean, we kind of talk to ourselves in, que- in forms of questions. When you really think about what we're doing, like, oh, I'm going to go talk to that girl. Or I'm going to go talk to that guy and see if he wants to be on my podcast. But what if he says no? But what if he says yes? Right. And it's totally I mean, what's the worst that could happen? They say no. Yeah. I mean, but it seems like we're always mm-hmm. planning out what the worst is you know, right. at the same time instead of maybe it's going to turn out great. And if it does not, maybe not that it always is, but like just this fear and flip it. And it's just, I think that's why like you said a lot of people are fearful. They're not flipping it and they're not looking at it as like, okay, maybe this will work. Like, why not? Yeah, you know take, I mean? a, take a chance because things might work out even better than you imagined. And yeah, then yeah. you'll 
you'll be glad you did. And you if know? I don't, oh, fuck. You know? <laughs> well, well. Here we it are. It is what it is. Whatever's yeah. meant to be will be. And that's how I live my life. You know, I I will, instead of stressing about things that we don't have control over, um, I, I focus on what I can do. And being present. And Tanahan talks about that a lot, too. Like, in, in regards to be ready to die, he really means, you know, be ready to live now. And the way the best way to live now is to be present and to live deeply and profoundly. The thing is, is to choose that. To choose it, to be intentional. Like I've seen people where they're with their kids, but they're on their phone. It's like, be present with your child. You know, if you're watching a movie, be there with them, not just in body, but in your mind and in your spirit, be present. Yeah, I've always been conscious of being present, but there are those times where I get lost in that aspect of mm-hmm. it, and I'm really trying to be conscious. Of that. <laughs> it's so it is it is hard. It's like the fucking phone is like excuse my language. Yes, like the phone. that is an important lesson is to be present. But it's nice to hear that you even from the get go before you know we started before all the things you've experienced that you seem to be pretty cognitive of how you feel and what you're feeling and preparing and this and that. So. If you do have anything left in there in regards to what you're feeling, just continue doing the work. And absolutely, you know. yeah, EMDR helped me a lot because I I did EMDR. Um, EMDR. Yeah, it's um, gosh, I'm trying to remember the acronym. Uh, I <laughs> <laughs> well, well essentially, it. you're replacing the negative thoughts so or the negative feelings associated to thoughts of the past or think events that had happened and replacing it with a more productive and positive mm. uh, feeling and creating a safe space for yourself. So for me, I didn't have a safe space in my home because I grew up with a lot of abuse. And I, I, when I went to go see my therapist, she's like, okay, since you didn't have a real safe room, we'll create one. What does your safe room look like? Uh, and what do you smell? What do you see? And so when any time that I would get a uh, panic attack. I would imagine that. And to stay present, I would tap my heel on the ground to remind myself to stay grounded, to be here. You know, I think that helps too in regards to uh, any anxiety that I might feel about a certain thing, right? Like just reminding yourself to breathe, take a slow, deep breath. And paying attention to your breath helps bring you back to the present. And that's one of the things that Tinahan talks about in his documentary, Walk With Me. And he talks about, you know, just taking a deep breath in and saying, this is my in-breath, and then exhale out, and then just from saying in your head, like, this is my out-breath. And as you're doing it, you can't think of anything else because you're so focused on your breathing. Yeah, it really brings you to the present. Yeah, and you're saying it in your head, too, at the same time as you're breathing, so then your thoughts can't be occupied with other things. It's just impossible to to think about, you know, a bunch of other things while you're trying to focus at the same time. You just gave me a homework assignment, like I said. <laughs> as soon as we, we we cut this off, I'm gonna go. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna go put this Try on. It. You said Netflix. I think I saw Amazon Prime. You're probably I'm, right. I'm gonna, I'm gonna look it up. Okay. All right, but yeah, thank you so one. much for for doing this um, and sharing this story. I think there's definitely a, several things to learn from in regards to practices you can use to actually get through some of the things that you've gone through. Like I said, I can't relate to what you've gone through, but more power to you. And thank you for sharing this. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you.